what do you remember from your childhood about faith? Maybe you remember some old stories passed down from family members, or maybe you went to something like Sunday school or something like that. Today's guest wrote a book called Bible Stories for Grownups that helps us see some of those old stories in new ways. I think you're going to really enjoy the conversation, and I really strongly recommend his book, too. You know, one of my most vibrant memories from Sunday school growing up is the song, Jesus Loves Me. Do you know that song? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. I'll be honest. I don't really love the theology of that song now that I'm older and I'm thinking about the words. There was another tune that I learned back then that went, uh, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. I think the spirit of that song is a little closer to my grown-up belief system, but the implications of the use of the words red and yellow tells me a little bit about how white the people were who wrote that song and who taught it to me. Anyway, the faith stuff we grew up with might not be the faith stuff that makes sense to us today. And uh, I think that's okay. The context of our life changes. And I'm excited to invite you into this conversation with Pastor Josh Scott, which explores the idea of context. Thanks for listening to the Between Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Matson, and I'm really glad you're here. Hey there, everyone. Welcome to the Between Podcast, where we love to have sacred conversations about the power of, well, sacred conversations in our lives. This podcast lives at uh, the beautiful and complicated and I think potentially life-changing intersection of two important things, faith and human connection. I'm your host, Matt Matson, and I'm delighted to have Pastor Josh Scott with us here today. Before I introduce Josh, let me say this. I kind of hope, I kind of hope our listeners will give us the grace to have a conversation that is maybe three things. Uh, Number one, imperfect. I know I'm asking for something from listeners before we've even started this thing, but man, that's, that's what I hope for. I I hope, I hope our, our listeners will give us three things. Number one, uh, the space to be imperfect. I hope we don't feel the pressure of having to say all the right things in all the right ways. Number two, I hope our listeners will allow us to be uncertain. Uh, I hope we don't feel like we need to agree on everything to connect deeply. I think the space between the ways we understand the big questions of life might be wide. And I think that's a really beautiful, beautiful thing. And then number three, I hope our listeners will allow us to have conversations that are love filled. I hope we can just sort of let our heart or the Holy spirit or God's love or whatever guide our interaction. And, uh, I just don't want us to feel like we have to perform or follow a script or anything. Our guest today, Josh Scott, is the lead pastor at my favorite church that I've never been to. Uh, He leads Grace Point Church in Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, let me just say that even if you're nowhere near Nashville, you should follow Grace Point on social media uh, for some of what I think is the best church-related content, church-created content on the internet. Josh is also an author. Uh, he wrote a fantastic book titled Bible Stories for Grownups. And he has another book coming out in spring of 24 titled Context, Putting Scripture in Its Place. I hope I got those titles right. But I'll tell you what, I just read uh, Bible Stories for Grownups, and uh, uh, it was fantastic. I devoured it in a weekend and took tons of notes. And I'm I'm super excited just to have the honor of having this conversation. Josh, I'm really glad to have you. What are a couple other things we should know about you? Gosh, thanks so much for having me, Matt. And uh, thanks for reading the book. I'm glad you enjoyed it. It's yeah. like writing the book is half the battle. People have to read it. Yeah. <laughs> and so thank you. A um, couple of things about me. Um, I have uh, my wife and I live outside of Nashville. We have five kids. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm originally from Appalachia. And um, you can tell that sometimes when I'm talking, uh, but you can also tell it uh, sometimes when I'm thinking about my favorite food, which is probably pepperoni rolls. So uh, yeah, that's me. Pepperoni rolls, man. That is a, that is a delicacy, a local Appalachian oh my gosh. delicacy. Uh-huh. And I don't get them. You know, I, I don't live near there. And so I've been, I was there last spring 
and I was able to get pepperoni rolls and introduce them to my kids. It was a real big moment. I'll bet. I'll bet it was. Uh, <laughs> hey, tell uh, tell us more about Grace Point. This is your this is your day job, but I, I have a sense that it's a passion, and it seems to uh, maybe emit your character, and uh, uh, you feel maybe as one with it sometimes it looks to me anyway, by what I see on social media and what I know about you, it seems like something special is happening there. Well, thank you. Um, I, I feel really fortunate to get to be a part of Grace Point. So Grace Point's been around for 20 years. I've been the lead pastor for almost five. Um, at the same time, Grace Point was making its progressive journey. Uh, I was in a rural church in small town, Kentucky. Um, leading a church to, that was pretty much, you know, your typical conservative contemporary church, leading it to become affirming and progressive. Um, I'm just kind of intertwined with Grace Point uh, when I figured out they existed, um, became friends with the lead pastor there, Stan Mitchell. And when he was ready to step away, he, he said, hey, uh, would you interview? Would you be interested? And um, here we are five years later. And it, it really is one of the most one of the most unique experiences um, because every single, almost every single day, not even every single Sunday, every single day, I get to hear from people who um, had given up kind of on being able to find church. I mean, a lot of the people who come to us at Grace Point are on their way to what John Shelby Spawn called the Church Alumni Association. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes our church, you know, it, it, we see our role in the world as being doing a few things. One is for some people, we're their last stop, and and we sort of get to provide hospice care for their faith because they're they're leaving faith as they knew it. Um, for others, we're the place where their faith gets rekindled in some way, where they realize I don't have to leave it if I don't want to. That I actually there's a way to come back to this, reimagine it um, in a way that I think is very authentic and, and connected to. I love the word radical because it means it sounds like it means out in left field, but it actually means going back to the root of something and. Yeah. I think it's what we're trying to do. We're trying to go back to the root of what this Jesus movement was in the beginning, which I think was uh, a, a vibrant movement that was trying to tear down the walls and boundaries that culture had put in place to keep people from flourishing. Um, and so we see our role in the world as helping people flourish by helping them reimagine their faith. And it's, it's really, words can't really describe it, honestly. There are 12 things you just said that I want to dive into. Uh, let's start. <laughs> uh, let's start with it. Let's, let's just live in, um, let's live in, uh, Grace Point sometimes serves as a, a, a place of faith hospice, I think you said, for mm -hmm. folks who are really just abandoning, yeah. leaving, uh, maybe letting uh, a past understanding of faith die. I, we've got a, our between audience is a wide range of people. I'm guessing that's Grace Point too, a wide range of um, theological grounding, a wide range of doubt, uh, a wide range of questions. And I, I find myself being so drawn to people who are deconstructing their faith, who are uh, leaving what they thought they knew behind because they don't know it anymore. And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm often heartbroken uh, by that. Not because I think people have to stay grounded in, in some faith that they grew up with, but more because there's not a lot of places that will help you reconstruct a faith in a healthy way, in a way that allows you to figure it out in a way that honors your questions and your life experience. I'm, I'm curious how you as a pastor and Grace Point, maybe overall, navigates those waters, those waters of people deconstructing and maybe not even wanting to reconstruct or when they do want to, how do you do that in a way that, uh, that doesn't just pin them back into something that uh, they wanted to get out of anyway? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, one of the things I think about every single week when I get up in front of our community to teach is there are people in the room who are in, in wildly different places. There are some who are like in the middle of free fall, theologically, faith-wise. There are some who have did that so long ago and they're like, I'm, I'm, I'm moved on. I just want to uh, just 
assume the lens and move forward. Mm-hmm. And I've got like 30 minutes to say something to both of them that, that gives, you know, it's a challenge. It really yeah. is. But, you know, for, for me, I think that when we know the goal, um, it helps us decide what steps to take, or at least it helps guide us a little bit. And for us, the goal is, and I think this is the heart of the gospel, the goal is human flourishing. Mm-hmm. The goal is how, how do we help human beings be fully alive? Uh, to use the language of John, the gospel of John, it's uh, how do we help people find life abundant? Um, and for some people, faith has been so harmful and damaging that for them to heal, they have to get out. And the pastoral response to that is not, no, no, stay. I need you to stay and validate my ego. Um, the pastoral response to that is, how do we help you do this, leave this in a dignified and healthy way? Uh, and there are some of those. The overall majority of people I think I, I, I deal with um, and, and talk to and pastor and, and care about um, are people who feel like their faith um, has been taken from them and like scripture has been taken from them by people who have used it and wielded it as a weapon, but they feel grief and they're want they, if, if they had an on-ramp to be able to come back to it, to reimagine it, uh, to reclaim it, they would. And so in some ways, um, and this is why I talk about Bible stories for grownups too, is, uh, you know, there are some folks who, they feel grief around all of this being sort of co-opted by people with a, a weapon, weaponizing it with a hateful agenda. How do we help people come back to it? And I find lots of people are there. That's what they want. Like, they want to be able to come back to it. They want to, to be able to go back to the scriptures they had known, um, but to have them in a way that's not harmful. Um, and uh, so that's a big chunk of our time is spent trying to help people do that. Like, how do we help people who want to come back to their faith? How do we help them do that in a way that is intellectually honest, that is, you know, soul spiritually nourishing, um, and that helps in a practical sense their day-to-day experience. So that's that's kind of, you know, th- those are our three groups, the people on the way out, the people who are trying to come back to it, and then the people who are like, hey, we just want to assume the lens. Yeah. I can imagine, I mean, so much of what we talk about it between is about, moments of sacred human connection and uh those come in all shapes and sizes right those come in at those come at amusement parks those come at family dinner tables and they probably come pretty often as a pastor when you're talking with people who are just so confused or so beat up or so worn out by faith uh that you may be the last stop on the train uh the train out right that yep. Those encounters, those conversations, we talk about those. We talk about when somebody shares that with you, when somebody shares uh, where they are or how lost they are in the wilderness of a faith journey, when they share that with you, how do you show up to it in a way that really um, a lot gives them permission to reimagine faith? You talk about reimagining a lot, and I love that word. Uh, and uh, maybe I wanted to prompt that a little bit, but how do you show up to those conversations? Yeah, yeah I actually like the word reimagine better than reconstruct. And, mm-hmm. and it's, uh, it's for because of something you said, which is, you know you alluded to, which is if all we're doing is reconstructing, we're just building something back that we're going to have to deconstruct. Um, and, and that's hard. Deconstruction is hard. And for all the folks who are like, you're just choosing it because X, Y, and Z, nobody, nobody wakes up one morning and says, I'm going to make, all of my relationships, I'm going to lose a bunch of relationships. I'm going to make the ones I have awkward. It's going to be weird to go to Thanksgiving with my family. Like nobody's <laughs> waking up and choosing that. It's something that comes to us. And, um, and so, but reimagining, you know, you're not having to blow something up. You're just, you're just continuing the natural evolution of the thing. And so that's kind of what we invite people, um, try to invite people to do. How I show up for it. First of all, I show up for it with empathy because 25 years ago or almost, I guess, um, 30 years ago now, almost that was me. I started my, my faith started unraveling when I was 12. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, when, when I talk to people, when I sit with people and I hear both the, the, almost the panic and the fear, like everything I've known is, is falling apart and I'm scared to death. I, I can show up with that and say, I totally get it. I mean, our circumstances may be different. The, the impetus for our journey may be different, but we're still in the spot where, um, sort of the sacred canopy we lived under has been punctured. Huh. 
um, the curtain's been pulled back. We we now understand that this this religion that has been exerting power and control over us, um, you know, is just the 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 Wizard of Oz behind the curtain, and, yeah. and it's not the only version. And so I just try to show up with empathy, and I try to listen to people, try to connect them with resources that can be helpful. Um, I, I, I I try to always remind people um, that, as the poet Mary Oliver said, things take the time they take. Um, the reason I point that is, I'll, it was this was a really formative conversation for me several years ago, probably you know five six years ago. I was speaking at a Christian a progressive Christian festival called Wild Goose, uh, and a, a woman came up to me afterwards, and she um, was, it was older. She's probably in her you know sixties maybe, um, and she said she just sort of shared that she had been on this faith unraveling deconstruction journey and she didn't know up was down and she just she had a list of scriptures that she wanted to ask me about see if I can make them make sense for her and so she did and I could just see that you know angst and the the tension in her I just said hey can I can I ask you a question like um what is it you think you're needing from that she said I think I, I need to know that there's not something wrong with me mm-hmm. and I think I need to know that I think I'm just struggling. It's taking me a while. I've been on this journey for a couple of years now and I'm just struggling. And I said, you know, how long were you a Christian before, you know, you were, how long were you a conservative Christian? How long were you raised in that environment? She's like, you know, 50, 60 years of my life. And I was like, so what has been baked into you for that long will not get baked out of you in two years. Um, even when you know there's a better theology, sometimes the echoes are still in your your brain. Yeah. And so I said, you don't need this from anybody uh, objectively, but if you need it, you have permission to take your time hmm. and there is no end here. It's just you moving toward becoming who you were meant to be. Um, I saw her and I, I've since said that to so many people, like there's no, there's no timetable here. This is your journey. This is take a breath. There is nowhere you're supposed to end up. This is a journey. And I saw her again uh, last last year, I think, year before at, at the festival, and she was like, "You were right. Uh, it, it, things do take the time they take." And it was really lovely to see her kind of being at a different, unfinished. We're all unfinished, but yeah. a different place in the journey. So I just try to give people the permission they they don't need, but think they need sometimes. Yeah. To just be patient with themselves, to take the time that that the, the rush to get to formulations and answers and doctrines and dogmas. That's actually what we're leaving behind is the the need to have these things so set in stone and so firmed up. And so, um, yeah, I, I think pr- what I found in pastoral work is 99% of the work is presence. Mm-hmm. And, and just seeing and hearing people and letting them know they're not alone. Man, if, uh, if all of us took from just this conversation that 99% of the work is presence, uh, just letting people know they're not alone is... Uh, that's about, that's, that's 99% of what it takes to have a sacred moment of connection, I think. I think maybe pastoring and that are very similar. I'm struck by that story of, uh, that story of the woman you met at Wild Goose and telling that, like, th- it takes time. I, I keep having this thought, this is me just processing for a moment. You'll be my pastor for these next uh, 60 seconds or so, but... I keep having this thought that like, I'll have these moments of, shouldn't I, shouldn't I not have it figured out more, but shouldn't I be more enlightened? Shouldn't I be more evolved on my spiritual journey? It, or I'll have like uh, imposter syndrome thoughts of like, who am I to even talk about this? Who am I to even play in this ballpark <laughs> of faith? Uh, like, I, I don't know nearly enough. I don't have nearly the right experiences. And then, and then I start thinking about either characters in the Bible or characters from old faith stories or sacred texts. I, th- I start thinking about, I start thinking about how old, how how long we've been in the same conversation. It just Christianity itself, like we're two thousand years into the exact same conversation, and maybe nowhere closer to figuring it out. Right? Maybe further away than we were. 100 years ago or 500 years ago i don't i don't know none of us really know and and there is no right. destination you saying that like there is no thing that you're trying to get to in fact if you think there is that's probably the thing you were trying to get out of that is a really powerful thing to think about 
And it gives all of us permission to just enjoy the conversation, to just grow from the conversation and see what's next for us. It makes me think about, uh, uh, I'm going to use the title of your upcoming book. It makes me think about the context of uh, like our current context, each of our current contexts. The context of me is a 40, almost 46 year old dad of two in Colorado is very different than the context of me as a 22 year old college student in Michigan, right? Like the, that, and to name that and to honor that and to say the, the context of me as a 50 year old guy a few years from now is actually going to be pretty different too. I already learned yeah. this, this fall, my, my oldest started high school. And as it turns out, the context of a high schooler's dad, like is very different than the context of a middle schooler's dad. There's a whole other like you turn the page and it it's a whole other chapter as it turns out of your life that you have to understand yeah. and make meaning in and make sense of the world in. And so when I read a story from the Bible, for example, or when I encounter a, a conversation, it strikes me in a new way. I, I think about you're from uh, McAndrews, Kentucky. I've never been there. It doesn't sound like the biggest place on the face of the planet. I'm guessing it's a, ho it's a holler. Yeah, but it is a holler. Uh, I'll bet the context of growing up there taught you about a lot of things faith-wise, but also about the way you're supposed to relate to other people. And, uh, I'm, I'm curious about that, that part of your background growing up in a hollow, yeah. uh, how did it teach yeah. you how to interact to, to be with people? That's, that's a great question. Uh, and I, I love talking about where I'm from. I'm, I'm a very proud Appalachian. I think that they are. My, my people back there are a proud, strong, brilliant uh, people who often get mischaracterized and mocked in uh, broader media. Um, but there's some, some beautiful, beautiful people uh, and some brilliant people that I am fortunate to be kin to. Um, so I'll say something about that, but I also want to make a reference to, you were talking about the 46-year-old you or 40-whatever, 50-year-old you. The, the, one of the most helpful things anybody ever told me is like, if you were to slice us open, all those other versions of us we've left behind and grown out of are like rings in the tree in there. Mm -hmm. They're all still part of us. The the 19-year-old fundamentalist preacher, me, that I have so desperately wanted to distance myself from, he's in there. Mm -hmm. The difference is he's not calling the shots and driving the bus anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and there are, you know, there are necessary things we picked up and let go of in all of these stages, and it goes with us. Um, Richard Ward talks about transcend and include, but um, but he's actually flipped that in recent years to include and transcend. Hmm. Um, and as long as we're fighting with old, and I did this for a long time, as long as we're fighting with old versions of ourselves that we're embarrassed of, or that we're frustrated with, or that we wish they knew better, or you know things take the time they take, we can't. It, it, we have to make peace with those versions of ourselves. Um, do any repair work that may need to be done that we, have, you know, I feel like so much of my life continuing is just trying to do repair for what I did as a fundamentalist. Um, but I think that's a, that's a helpful for me way of thinking about it is we're all, it's all in there. It's, it just has, uh, it's not in charge anymore. Those versions of me helped shape who I became. Um, and so did my, you know, so did growing up in a holler in Eastern Kentucky, growing up in a coal a family that was either coal miners or railroaders. Um, you know, I, I learned a lot about, and it was never explicitly taught. It was more implicit, but I learned a lot about, um, I was being prepared to care about injustice there, even though it wasn't the way we talked about it. Um, but, you know, uh, growing up in a coal community where there had been coal camps that essentially take over people's entire lives and um, where people struggled to make it and struggled to put food on the table, struggled to be able to provide for um, their basic necessities at times. I was insulated from some of that um, uh, and didn't really uh, realize it until I got, you know, grew up and went to college and realized that um, there are lots of places where I'm from that struggled. And I, you know, when I think about so much of the Jesus story now, because the thing that has probably changed, you know, you talk about, you can, there's no finish line to this thing. My understanding and lens for Jesus and Paul have changed more in the past two to three years than uh, I ever thought was possible once I deconstructed atonement, once I deconstructed taking certain things literally. I thought, well, there's nothing left, really. This is just what it is. And in the past couple of years, I've, th this lens has developed for me that as I've studied you know, history and as I've studied Jesus scholarship and the letters of Paul, that I see what they're doing. And I, there's an added layer of nuance there to me now that wasn't there before. So it keeps going. 
And I think all of our experiences, um, I don't know, I don't know about exactly how you're raised. I was raised that experience was dangerous mm-hmm. as an interpretive tool. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then I was introduced to the Wesleyan, Wesleyan quadrilateral, mm-hmm. which if you don't sure about the Wesleyan quadrilateral, it's this, you know, how, how, uh, John, he didn't, Wesley didn't call it this, but it was sort of this idea of how do we make decisions theologically or how do we make faith decisions? And he said, well, you know, you engage scripture, you engage reason, you engage tradition, you engage in experience. And, and for me, those things have actually been being given that tool, like, Oh no, that uh, now every experience I have doesn't mean it's a thing I want to follow or the right thing or a path, but, but discerning my experience and bringing that lens to faith has been really helpful and transformative. Um, and I think that's actually what Jesus, I mean, Jesus doesn't just show up as this prophet preaching about justice and resisting empire um, out of nowhere. And he grew up in this little place called Nazareth, a place that probably in, just before his birth or just after his birth had been totally decimated by the Romans. And you're telling me that that doesn't, you know, that doesn't hang over his story and doesn't shape his story. Of course it does. And yeah. all of our stories are shaped by our experience. And so um I, I think that the the way I've come to care about justice uh, in, in the like not just in the local sense but in the global sense, this idea the world the world has problems that need to be righted, uh, problems of inequality and inequity and injustice. Uh, I think it kind of goes back to my roots, uh, even though I didn't know it at the time. If that makes sense, because yeah. I, I look back at you know my hometown and I see the struggle and not right <laughs> that people have given their lives and their bodies to mining coal for example and then these companies don't care about them anymore. yeah um, so i think all of that hangs over my story the uh one of my first jobs uh, in fact my my actual first job after college uh doesn't really matter what the job was but i was it allowed me to drive around the country in a car, basically living out of a car, uh, visiting college campuses all over sort of uh, a region. And the region that I got was kind of from Michigan to Indiana, across Ohio into West Virginia, and then up into the Northeast. And uh, I grew up in a small town in Michigan, which is the most Appalachian place outside of Appalachia. In fact, there's a lot of good uh, sort of demographic and sociological science about how a whole lot of folks, including my, my grandfather, my grandfather came to Michigan on a covered wagon out of someplace in Kentucky. That's literally all about my grandfather. Right. Um, and so and there's a whole lot of there's a whole lot of sort of Appalachian migration once the auto industry took off. And anyway, yep. so I, I've always uh, uh, I've always been sort of fascinated by uh, sort of Appalachian culture, uh, confused by it. like it, it seemed far away from me. It didn't I didn't really understand it, but I felt sure. a connection, a kinship maybe. And I remember uh, in that first job after college, uh, traveling east through Ohio. And then I start stopping in these coal towns uh, at places like Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania, which is, uh, uh, I mean, it's just a, just a coal town, old coal town. And, and uh, the, all the, all the money left, all the business left, all the work left, but there's still people there and getting to know the, 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 the students at this university, this local college and learning about their families and seeing where the, and then, then I headed to West Virginia and stopped. And then I hit right. Like, in uh, Eastern Kentucky. And uh, like I started stopping in these places that a felt like home to me, but also felt like they had their own language. They had their own understanding of the world, their own, uh, truly their own microculture. And every stop on the highway that I, that I went to was like a different world. If I looked close enough and as a 22 year old, that was a revelation. It really was. Yeah. And so I, I think about, as you talk about that, and as I think about the way we relate to each other and the way we bring our own context, we, we in fact, we bring our own faith, our own understanding of faith to every interaction, to every person we encounter. I think so often we operate out of our own context. We operate out of our own, we assume that the Bible, when I read the Bible, I read it uh, for what I need and uh, look for what I'm looking for and I find what I'm looking for. Yeah. 
And when I have a conversation with you, I look for uh, what I need from you and what I'm looking for from you. And I probably find a way to get that. And that's how often we do that. But man, the moment we start to see you with all of the, we start to color in the outline of you, or we start start to color in the outline of a story in the Bible and start to understand its context, its background, the characters, the motivation, the language, the, boy, it, it turns everything uh, different, beautiful <laughs> shades, man. It's, it's wild. It does. And if you'd have, you know, if you'd have told me, if you'd have asked me growing up, I would have, I really believe Jesus probably didn't live that long ago. And he grew up on Pond Creek where I grew up, yeah, right? Like yeah. might as well have been the same thing. And then you find out, um, Oh no, there's this, uh, I have a friend named Brad Davis who, um, he is a Methodist pastor back in, um, West Virginia around where I'm from. And, uh, we grew up in the same area. He's a few years older than me, but he has this saying, and I actually quote him in the next book where he talks about, um, we're not just from a place we're of a place. And mm. I just think that distinction is powerful. Mm. Like, it's not just like I'm from here, but this place is in me. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think the way I was taught to read the Bible um, was sort of the, the first question you ask about the Bible is what does it mean for me? Right. Mm -hmm. Like go have your quiet time, um, read the Bible and ask what it means for you. I, I don't think asking what this means for me is, a, is an out of bounds question. I just don't think it's the first question. I think it's probably the last question mm. um, or one of the later questions. I think the first question is what was going on in this text? What was going in this story? What was going on in the world outside of it? What were the political and social pressures that were being placed on people to, to do things, to make decisions, to act in certain ways? Um, and when you can bring that lens to the Bible, it it actually, you begin to fill in and you you suddenly go from a two-dimensional cutout, you know, I, I grew up on flannel graphs, right? Um, you go from like a two-dimensional flannel graph to you're, you have a pop-up book, you have a three-dimensional story here. And, and when you fill in some of those contextual details, it just makes it come alive in ways that it can't otherwise. Yeah. And um, when I, you know, I, I started realizing this and teaching this years ago, and I remember somebody getting so mad at me about it because every time I would teach on a text and he was like, that's not what it means to me. And I would say, like, I, I, like, I get you can go wherever you need to with the interpretation. I'm just like, here's what we know historically. Mm -hmm. um, and here's what we know contextually about this text, because otherwise, and I've heard this attributed to many people. So, I, you know, I'm just going to say a wise person once said that, you know, a text without a context is a pretext for whatever you want it to be. And to do all sorts of terrible things with it, um, and so that's one of the reasons I think it's really important. Not only it respects the text, but also it sort of acts as a check against our our desire to take the text, bend it around our own intentions, and then to use it against other people yeah. um, in harmful, toxic ways. Yeah. I want to. Um, can I ask about? Uh, can we? Uh, pause the uh, the depth of this conversation. I I, I, I want to bounce. Uh, you got kids. You got five kids. That I fills do. a lot of your life. I want to know about your kids. <laughs> I want to know about. Yeah. I I mean, a, a relevant question is how do you how do you talk to kids in a way that is kid that is age appropriate that is um uh, that meets them where they are about how do you talk to them about faith but also yeah. in a way that that is uh caring and honors uh maybe some of the some of the depth that you learn when you spend time in the text and when you when you really understand the context or try to understand the context how how do you do you got five kids how do yeah. you do that man uh um I'll, anytime we're talking about parenting uh, what i'm going to share is descriptive not prescriptive <laughs> i do not have this figured out I have nothing figured out about parenting. I have, so my oldest is going to be 14 in a couple of days. Um, he's in eighth grade. He, um, he's just, you can't believe he's 14. Uh, what that means for him, what that means for me. And, uh, you know, he has eighth grade night coming up uh, in January for basketball. And I just told him, I'm just going to stand beside you on the court and sob and just go, my baby, my baby. Cause that's what it feels like. Uh, and then Oliver, we have four other kids that are um, about to, uh, the oldest will be eight soon, and then under. Um, and I'll, you know, I'll be honest, we don't push a lot of a lot of religious stuff on our kids. Yeah. Um, I, I realized that, and some people would think that we're just, you know, we're terrible because our kids maybe don't know all the big stories that I wrote about in the book. 
because they're not for kids. Um, uh, two, two, two examples. One, I remember when our oldest was much, much younger. He was probably three or four. He asked me about the story of Jonah and the big fish. And so I try to tell him a story. And I'm talking to him about, you know, I'm, this story is not literal. It's a parable. And this is what a parable and I'm going through all this with him. And at the end of it, I go through this whole description of how Jonah is this, you know, this warning about what happens if we don't learn to deal with our enemies differently. And if we don't learn to love our, love our enemies. And I go through this whole thing and he looks at me and went, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> and so I realized number one, don't no, you can't give them too much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, um, and I think I write about this in the first book. It's been almost a year. So um, my memory gets a little foggy, but um, one of my daughters uh, it was during COVID. She went over to the bookshelf we had in our family room and she pulls off this book and brings it over to me. And I realized I hadn't seen this book in years. It was the book my great grandmother had given me on my second Christmas. <laughs> and it was Bible story for children <laughs> and it had David and Goliath in gold embossed on the front. And she opens the book up and she points to a page and she says, daddy, what's going on here? And it's, it's the picture, I cover this in the book, Abraham and Isaac, the, the, you know, the almost sacrifice. And in the book, Abraham is like this, you know, long white hair, long beard, uh, he, kind of Santa Claus vibe. And he's got this big knife stretched back behind his head. And Isaac is laying on an altar and she's like, what's going on here? I was like, uh, nothing that you're ready for. Yeah. Um, and so just what, honestly, if I do anything with our kids, I try to teach them about virtue and value mm. values. Um, because my understanding of those things are shaped by lots of things are shaped by the Jesus story. They're shaped by wanting to be a, a hope to continue into being, becoming a decent human being. And, and so we'll talk to them about how we treat people. We'll talk to them about how the, the most important thing they can know about God is that God is love and that God loves them and that God, that they are embraced by God, just that they don't need to do anything. There are no hoops. There are no requirements that, that simply they can trust that God loves them just as they are. That's if I can download that to them um, so that, you know, they're not dealing with what so many of us did, which is, I, mean, I, I have this unbelievable story where I went to see my sleep doctor because for my, I, I, I'm finally sleeping really pretty well. Like I'm with non-medicated able to go to sleep at night. Most of the time. For a while I was taking prescription and melatonin and nothing was not, I, I just, and so I go to my sleep doctor and he says, why do you think you have trouble sleeping? And I said, well, my entire upbringing um, was, was, you know, I was caught between two no win situations. One is Jesus was going to come back at any moment. And if I had an unconfessed sin, I wouldn't go be sucked up into the sky with him or I could die. And if I had something, I had made peace with, with God because in uh, we eventually became liberal Southern Baptists and that. That's a joke. There's no such thing. I was going to say, is that a thing? But, com yeah. but compared to the free will Baptist upbringing I had, <laughs> where it was King James only, because if it's good enough for Jesus and Paul, it's good enough for us. Um, you know, that sort of upbringing, there was this sense of, you know, you could, you could lose your salvation like you lost your car keys. And so I just remember not wanting to go to sleep at night because missing the rapture, thankfully, which doesn't exist. And then going to hell, which thankfully is not an option. Like, but those two as a kid loomed large. And then the other option was actually being with God who didn't seem that nice to begin with. Like, <laughs> like in the theology I grew up with, the, like the only reason God is the best alternative is because God's better than hell. Yeah. But God doesn't seem like somebody you want to spend a lot of quality time with. It seems just angry and wrathful and uncaring. And, and I, so I, I explain all this to my sleep doctor and he goes, yeah. That'll keep you up. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, you know, that journey of being a, a guy, I don't, I don't want my kids to have that. And, they're, you know, they'll have their own things to deconstruct, I'm sure, because that's just the human experience of, uh, yeah. there are things I'm probably in teaching them that when they get up older, they'll say, I can't believe my parents taught me that. Yeah. I don't know what they are. I'd fix them. But they won't have to deconstruct and, and unravel in the ways I have. Yeah. And they'll have permission from the beginning. It won't be, I remember in the early days when I finally was consciously deconstructing, say around 2003 or four. And then I started pastoring while doing it in 2005. Hmm. And then getting with people and trying to ask just enough questions to figure out if they read similar authors and they were safe to talk to about what yeah. I was thinking. Yeah. They won't have to do that. Thank yeah. you.
That's good. The, uh, I think about, uh, I started a, a couple of years ago, I started posting daily uh, faith related content, prayers or other content on social media. Um, and it looked like it was like either midlife crisis, uh, that, that's why I was doing that, or I was trying to start a new career in the faith world and sort of have. Uh, but I think at least 50% of the reason I was doing it is because my oldest daughter got Instagram that year. And I thought, well, if I, if she's going to read my posts every day, like how could I whisper in her ear every morning when she wakes up and whether I like it or not, she, she checks her Instagram. And now both my daughters are on Instagram, <laughs> whether I like it or not, if that's what she's going to read, like, what if I could speak hope into her Instagram feed every day? Like what a gift that she could, my kids, both my kids, both my daughters could read my writing period uh, every day or read a hope filled message or read an inclusive message or read a message that, that gives them permission over and over and over every single morning yep. to find their own answers, to be as uncertain as they can and to ask as many questions as they possibly can. Like, uh, man, that's, a that's been a gift for yeah. me and, and like figured out figuring out how to do that in, in, in ways where they're just like, where they're never, well, never mind. <laughs> That was too much yeah. information. That's a that's that's a that's a fun story too. And you know, um, I, there's there's something to that for me that which is I I don't know how many of my kids will still be like will be Christian when they grow up and make their own choices. They may do other things. They may do nothing. Right? Like that's their journey. But um, I, I do think about my kids, and I think about other other kids, and I think about you know my grandkids someday, and all of that, and like that's why I think I'm doing this work. Mm. Um, partly to, to it, because there are people who need safe places. Yes. Um, because there are people who need a space and, and who aren't even born yet, who need a space to go where they're the first word God says to them is not you're wrong, you're bad, you're broken, you're disconnected, you need something. But the first word God says to them is you are my child. You're my beloved child in mm. you. I find so much joy. And if, if we can, like, if that's the message they hear first, um, which is the, which is like the brilliant thing about the way the baptism of Jesus is portrayed in the gospels, especially Mark and Matthew is Jesus is baptized. He, God speaks over him. This, you're my son, you know, you bring me joy and he's not done anything cool yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like no miracle, no exorcism, no teaching, no nothing. He's just this as far as we can tell, unknown dude from the Galilee. Yeah. And he, he has this experience of being um, spoken over. And I just, gosh, if we could have people begin there, this is not about your performance. This is not about what you believe. This is not about getting it all right, lining, it, yeah. lining all the ducks up right in the row. It is just about first and foremost, realizing that your, hum your humanity is a gift that God has given you. And you get to lean into becoming the best version, the best, most flourish, human flourished version of you as possible. Yeah. Um, I want that message for everybody who needs it. Yeah. You know, and there are a lot of people who are who are already alive in the world, who who have been told the opposite. I remember being at a youth camp once. We took our church. We were sort of moving in the progressive direction back in those days in my church in Kentucky, and. There was just no progressive youth camp anywhere near us. So we took our kids to the camp I ended up, I grew up in, um, just hoping that it would, it was just a weekend and just hoping that they would get so lost in the fun things they got to do that and we could kind of try to help. If there's any toxic messages, we could, um, would never do that now, but this was very early on and just trying to figure out something for our youth. So we go and the pastor tells us, uh, you know, hey, um, not going to do any of that guilt and shame stuff on the kids. I'm not going to try to scare them. I'm not going to do any of that stuff. Um, the very first night, the entire sermon is all that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a kid from another youth group who came up, who was just sitting sobbing. One of our volunteers, every he got left by his group or something, one of our volunteers went over and talked to him. He's just an 11 year old kid and he just keeps going, I'm just awful. I'm horrible. I'm unworthy. Mm -hmm. And I uh, thank God for our volunteer who said, no, you're 11 mm -hmm. and you're, you're wonderful. Yeah. And you're who God made you to be. And, um, uh, you know, like, so I, I don't know that maybe sometimes we shouldn't go into, um, 
maybe not take our kids there, but maybe as grownups, we go covertly as chaperones to youth camps so we can detoxify the messages that these kids are, these kids are getting beaten up at 11, 12, 13 years old, 15, 16, 17 years old. They're being told how awful they are. They're not awful. They're in progress. They're in process. And so are we. Um, And so I think that's the message I, I want my kids to hear is that you're not perfect, but perfect has never been the goal. Perfect means, uh, you know, that's what people don't understand. We read the word perfect, and we have a very platonic idea of perfect that the writers of Scripture didn't have because they weren't saying perfect. They were saying complete. Hmm. That's different. Yeah, Perfect is static. It doesn't change. Um, and, and yet, as we look at creation, it's changing all the time. We're changing all the time. Um, and that's part that's happening to us out on the outside. It, it's got to be also happening to us on the inside. In uh, in a section of the book, uh, Bible Stories for Grownups, you're writing about Zacchaeus, and uh, uh, I never know. Do you know? Here's here's something that makes me insecure about talking about faith stuff. I never know if I'm saying people's names right or their their places right. And by the way, I've decided that everybody else is just making up all that uh, the right pronunciation. So I just say it the way I say it confidently. But anyway, Zacchaeus, yep. my boy Zach. Uh, and maybe you can remind us uh, the context of of that character in the Bible. But you wrote a line in that section uh, that I just loved, I absolutely loved. And maybe maybe it was it was supposed to strike me in a big way. But you say uh, it seems so much of what Jesus does in the Gospels is grounded in calling people back to who they truly are. Mm. Uh, anyway, you talk about being uh, complete. Uh, that yeah. that sings to me, and that that just made me think about that line that I read and how powerful that was. Will you remind us of the the context of that of that story? Yeah, and, yeah. I'm so glad I wrote that line. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like when so there's sometimes you hear a thing, and you're like, did I? Yeah, they're like, <laughs> surely I didn't say that. Um, that's that chapter in the book means a lot to me. Zacchaeus is uh, by the way i do the same thing with Mm -hmm. that name i do the same thing with uh, either pauline or pauline when you're Mm -hmm. talking about paul Mm -hmm. Uh, i'm I'm pauline paulining it right now but i'm still not sure that's correct um zacchaeus is a tax collector so that means he's he's a jewish guy but he's also working for the romans and tax collectors were known to uh, the way they got wealthy was by taking advantage and taking more right um and so he's he's collaborating with the oppressor to oppress his own people. Hmm. Um, and Jesus shows up to town uh, and Zacchaeus has this conversion experience of, uh, I can no longer live this way in this story. And I didn't realize this when I sat down to write the story of Zacchaeus, that chapter, I did not realize that I now, what I now think, which is that story is meant to be read next to the rich young ruler story. Hmm. Um, uh, and I, I realized that as I read, uh, as, I, as I went, okay, what's going on around? Because one of my standard approaches is what's going on around this? Let's read everything before and after, you know, and see where the ripples are. And, you know, the rich young ruler comes up to Jesus. What do I have to do to inherit the kingdom of God? Which is not, the question is not, what do I have to do to go to heaven when I die? But what do I have to do for the kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven? And Jesus says, well, it's, it's pretty simple. Um, in Jesus' world, and you can, we can make our own extrapolations to this world, but if you were wealthy, uh, one of the ways you got that way was by taking advantage or disadvantaging someone else, right? So to be a wealthy, to, to be a wealthy person in the first century meant to have own lots of land. So all of that was like, you've gotten this by calling in debts from other people. You've gotten this by all sorts of what we, what the Bible would call unjust means. And the rich ruler says, what do I need to do? And Jesus says, oh, that's easy. You need to get rid of your stuff. Because if you'll get rid of your stuff right now, the kingdom of God will come in your community because everybody will have enough. But the poor will hear good news. Those who are, you know, th- those who have been forgotten, those who are hungry. Those... And so then you come a few chapters later to the Zacchaeus story. And it's like Zacchaeus gets it. He gets it. He immediately starts making reparation for what he's done. He's giving away stuff. He's... And the kingdom of God in the story comes to Jericho that day because Zacchaeus gets what Jesus is doing. Um, and at our truest selves, the truest core of who we were created to be is not a greedy, stingy person 
who puts ourselves and our abundance uh, over everybody else. We have bought into a scarcity narrative um, that there's only so much to go around. So and th- we saw this, we see this every Black Friday and, and we saw this at the beginning of COVID when, when people were bulk buying massively toilet paper. I, I never understood why. It was, it's a respiratory illness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't know why. Like, like the one thing we all have to make sure we, or, you know, um, we're so thankful for all that we have. And the next day we're elbowing somebody over a flat screen TV. That's not our truest selves. Our truest selves looks at our neighbor and cares about their needs. Mm. Uh, Our truest selves wants the world to be a just and equitable place. We've just been indoctrinated and culturated into a capitalistic culture where all of that stuff, it seems like for everybody else to be okay, I have to, then I have to lose. Well, no, that's not what we're, we're saying. Everybody should have enough. Right. And so I think that's that's the beauty of that Zacchaeus story is it shows that there are different responses to this message, uh, this kingdom message, and that God will not override our response. Yeah. Yeah. Like and and, and I I just think about this all the time. There are buildings, church buildings full of people all over the world every Sunday who are saying, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then we're refusing to do the things that would make God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, and so what I said last week in my uh, Advent sermon, the first week of Advent is about hope and, and uh, Advent's about waiting, right? It's about preparing. I just said, what if, what if the whole time we've been waiting for God, God's been waiting for us? Mm-hmm. What if God's, what if while we're going like, when are you gonna? God's like, yeah, when are you gonna? Mm-hmm. Um, but because I, this, this, this has to happen. Every time God works, God works through flesh and blood. Um, that's the mystery of the incarnation, that every time God shows up in, in the world to do something, it's always in skin. Yeah, um, yeah so I, that was way more than you asked for. <laughs> no, that was, that, was, uh, that was beautiful. And it, you said, I, I'll, I'll butcher what you said, but you said at one point, you know, who we're truly meant to be, who we truly are, are people who love our neighbors. Like, like it's like the instructions that Jesus gives. And by the way, I think that most faith leaders from most faiths uh, of, of the major world traditions give is not to teach us anything new. It's to remind, like you said, to call us back to who we truly are, to remind us how distracted we've been. Yeah. from each other, from just looking at the person across from us and loving them. That's yeah. it. That's, yeah. uh, that's, that's, it's not, that's not the instruction. That is the reminder. That is the, the, sure. uh, the heart of it, man. I, I, I loved this conversation. I loved your book. I'm, I'm curious. I'd love for you to talk for just one second about, uh, the upcoming book context, which seems yeah. to me like it's, uh, likely, a. Uh, an extension of the first book. It's uh, it's some of the some of the same stuff, which is just a beautiful gift to give to the world to to help people see in regular people language, in non uh, heady, non uber theological language, like like non intimidating language. Uh, help people just understand these stories that we've heard forever uh, since we were little kids. And, you know, we pulled a shelf, uh, 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 pulled a book of our grandma's off a, yeah. off a bookshelf, <laughs> uh, man, to see these stories for the first time in a whole new way to, to really just see, oh, maybe there was a whole other message underneath here. Is that what context is about? I guess is my question. And will you talk about? It? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it is. And, you know, it, it, it's about, um, I, I love that you said in, in non-threatening, easy to understand, because that's my goal. Um, I, I want to be a translator. I, I want to help translate really good scholarship. Because what often happens is pastors go get trained in, in seminary. They learn all this stuff. And then they go back to their communities and refuse to teach it because they're afraid of the fallout. Um, and, and so then it makes it look like we were just making something up today, which is actually very old. Um, and so, you know, what I hope um, happens with the new, the new book is very similar in that we, we, I take some specific texts um, that have been traditionally just pulled from their context 
and read to be one thing. And some of it is benign, right? Like, so we open with 1 Corinthians 13, which often gets read at weddings, but Paul wasn't writing wedding liturgy. So, and and that's benign. Like, I I still use that at weddings when people ask me to. I I don't feel like it harms anyone. Yeah, he's not talking about that, but it sounds pretty, right? Yeah. Um, And then uh, we look at the book of Ruth uh, also, where Ruth uh, has that other that's used at a wedding where she, where she says, do not ask me to leave you where you go. I'll go your people, my people, your God, my God, where you die, I'll die where you're buried. I'll be buried, which is also read at weddings, which cracks me up because it's actually originally sung between a, a woman and her mother-in-law. <laughs> um, uh, but that, I think that story, when we just make that story a nice little idyllic story, uh, um, we miss the, uh, there's an edge to that story. Uh, and what I try to tease out in the book is look at this edge and look at how this story is actually stunningly relevant yeah. to the world we live in. We look at Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you and ask the question, does God actually have a plan for your life? Um, look at Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context, um, which is actually not what the verse says, but uh, that's that's my favorite coffee mug I see floating around the internet. Yeah. Um, and maybe the one that will be, I hope, worth the price of the book is um, the, the last chapter we focus on Sodom and Gomorrah which is an example of a, a malignant way of taking the Bible out of context and using it to harm people. Um, so it was so much, it was really fun to write. I think my, my voice comes out even more in this book than the first one. Um, uh, I knew what to do this time. Uh, I knew what to expect this time. And um, yeah, I hope people will find it just as helpful, just as engaging uh, as the first. It's uh, available for pre-order on Amazon, Barnes Noble, wherever you buy books. And uh, it comes out April 2nd. Well, congratulations on both books. Uh, huge accomplishments for anybody, anytime uh, to do, uh, even if you're a uh, well-established professional. And man, still birthing a book into the world is a, is a, uh, is a big, big deal. And I'm, I'm very excited about context, the upcoming book. I really, really loved uh, the, the, the Bible stories for grownups book. Uh, I just thought it was so approachable and so real and so relevant. Uh, there were a, mm. a number of times where I gasped or I not in shock, but in like, Oh, like, like, Oh, I, Oh, I didn't. I, the Jonah story, I think in particular, by the way, was the, uh, is the one that I just never really got uh, like, okay. Mm-hmm. Dude and a fish. Like I, I just, I never, never could make, any meaning that mattered to me about it. And I just thought, uh, I yeah. thought you did a wonderful job of making oh, that story you. new and helping me reimagine it. Uh, Josh, thank where, you. where, uh, if people wanted to learn more about you or follow you on the internet or whatever, I don't know, where, what do you, what do you, what do you want people to do? Yeah. So on, um, threads, whatever the thing, yeah. the cess, I'm still on the cesspool that used to be Twitter. <laughs> um, currently, I don't know how much longer that'll last. It's just getting pretty rough over there. Um, Instagram, I'm at Josh underscore a underscore Scott. Um, I'm pretty active on mostly on threads and, and Instagram, but I'm still on Twitter some. And then I have two websites. One is uh, kind of uh, a place where you can sign up for my newsletter. I haven't sent one out in a long time. That's going to change as we get into the new year. I'm going to try to send something out every week, but it's joshscott.online. It's a sub stack. It's just got my own domain yeah. name. And you can go sign up. Um, signups are free. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, there's a, eventually maybe there'll be a, an option for people to do a, a paid uh, membership, but they'll get no benefits other than what everybody gets, because I think this stuff needs to be available and accessible. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so it's free. You can just sign up and, and starting first year, I'll be sending out something once a week. And then my, just my website where people can find out more about me or uh, invite me to when we speak or, you know, whatever is, um, joshscott.co.co. Um, yeah, and you know, if, if I can be helpful, uh, people reach out all the time. I zoom with people a lot. Um, this, this work matters. And, um, I, I take, I'm not a Methodist, but I, I have dalliances. My, my publisher's Methodist and I did a little bit of time in a Methodist seminary. So I do occasionally quote John Wesley just to say, I, I feel like the world's my parish and that, uh, I want to be as helpful as I can to people wherever they are. So feel free to reach out if I can be helpful. Hey, thanks to all you betweeners out there for listening to this episode of the Between Podcast. Make sure you visit between.church on the internet to sign up for our mailing list. That's probably the most important thing, our email list. Make sure you subscribe to us on YouTube. You can check out our five-minute 
sermons, five ish minute sermons that we post every week. Follow us on social media. We got daily prayers. We got all sorts of other content and join our community fully. We invite everyone. You are welcome here. No matter who you are or where you're from, no matter what you believe, or even if you believe, no matter who you love or how you love, no matter what anybody else has ever told you about you, you are welcome and loved and celebrated here at Between. You know, my favorite church is the space between people. Now go with God's love and create the church between. <laughs>